Exactly. <laughs> so. Who the devil are you? Don't panic. Just come up with a good story. My name is Mr. Burns. Excellent. Howdy doodly and welcome to Hello Mr. Burns, a research podcast where we discuss all things Simpsons and all those really cromulent episodes from the golden years. My name is Perry, and um, if you want an update on my life currently, it is hump day today. Happy hump day, everyone. And I decided to treat myself by making myself a homemade lasagna. Um, and let me just tell you, this homemade lasagna was so bad, so rancid, so weirdly salty for a recipe that I didn't add any extra salt in that um, it's just sitting on the on top of the oven. I'm just going to hope that it disappears. Anyway, so today's episode that we're going to be tackling is from Season 2, Episode 16, and it's called Bart's Dog Gets an F. Yellow. Simpson, this is Sylvia Winfield. That canine of yours is in my pool again. I'm calling the dog warden right now. So I think um, in the last episode, I tried to guess from memory what happens in this episode, and I wasn't too far off, okay? It is worth noting that um, a couple of critics, um, a lot of armchair critics, especially on IMDb, say that this is the low point of Season 2. I don't think it's a low point. I think it's quite a sweet little episode and it actually has a lot of wonderful moments in it that have like really good quotes that I think we need to introduce into our everyday jargon. Anyway, alrighty, Roo, let's get started and um, we'll do an episode synopsis. So this is season two, episode 16, Bart's dog gets an F. So basically we begin the episode um, with Santa's little helper causing the family all kinds of problems. He doesn't obey commands. He's eating things. He, um, according to Marge, he's not even housebroken. So he's just basically causing a nuisance. Lisa wakes up feeling unwell and discovers that she has the mumps and has to spend a couple of days home from school. Marge decides to teach her the uh, family art of sewing. Well, Lisa, here it is. The Bouvier family quilt. (laughs) Wow, neat. Homer decides to go to the mall to buy her some magazines, and when he's there, he sees some pretty flash sneakers known as assassins. Ned Flanders was wearing them earlier, so of course he obviously has to buy them as well to compete. He brings them home, and um, Santa's little helper finds the box and decides to chew them up. Homer eventually goes to the mall's cookie shop and also gets a free macadamia nut cookie. Delicious! (gasps) Big cookie! Aloha. <laughs> Aloha. Would you like a free sample? The price is right. Hmm. Ooh. Michael nut. So meanwhile, Marge is showing Lisa how to do like a patchwork quilt, which is a family heirloom. Lisa decides to make her own contribution to it. But when she leaves the patchwork quilt alone, Santa's little helper jumps in and rips it up as well. Marge walks in, has a bit of a meltdown. Lisa has the same Homer's trying to console her and then he realizes that Santa's little helper's also eaten his macadamia nut, as he calls it. And he decides that if they can't get Santa's little helper to pass obedience school, they're going to have to give the dog away. So obedience school, um, Santa's little helper does not do well. The trainer reminds me of the nanny. Was it, was it the super nanny? Oh my goodness. What was she called? Cause the nanny was Fran Drescher. Oh my gosh. You're all probably screaming into your headphones right now. What was the name of the British nanny that couldn't say the word acceptable? She kind of reminds me of that. But anyway, so um, Santa's little helper keeps finishing bottom of the class. One night, Bart is having a cry and sort of pleading with Santa's little helper. I thought we were going to be pals forever. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, something happens in Santa's little helper's brain. And all of a sudden, he can understand Bart and he knows how to sit. Um, They walk in and show Homer and Marge how Santa's little helper is now behaving. And they decide to keep him. 
Lisa also marks the occasion by creating a brand new quilt to replace the one that was destroyed. The end. All right, so a little bit about this episode. This episode was written by John Vitti, and um, Tracy Ullman guest stars in this episode as the dog trainer. She also voiced the character of Sylvia Winfield, which is um, the Simpsons' neighbor in this episode who calls him up about the dog. Now, if I could borrow Satan's little helper. Santa's little helper. Ladies and gentlemen, most of you already know that with a little love and compassion, any puppy will grow up to be a cuddly little bundle of joy. Um, I did read up that Matt Groening has always said that he wanted to use Tracy Ullman um, as a guest appearance on The Simpsons. Every time he tried to create a character for her, she was too busy to come and record. So um, it is noted that once her show was cancelled in 1990, she had a lot of free time on her hand. And she decided to do a guest appearance just once after being asked by Matt Groening. The other famous uh, voice artist in this episode, of course, is Frank Welker. So Welker is actually best known for voicing the character of Fred Jones in the Scooby-Doo franchise pretty much since it began in um, 1969. He also does the voice of Scooby-Doo in the 2002 Onwards movies. It's amazing. He's the only original voice actor from the series to be cast in the movie. The guy's a legend. Um, But I was more excited to find out that he does the voice of Nibbler on Futurama. As a nice little throwback in this episode, um, there's a bit where Santa's little helper is chewing on the remote changing channels. And they show a picture of Lucille Botsikowski, who was um, the babysitter bandit from Some Enchanted Evening. So how's that for a throwback? No way. She's faking. If Lisa stays home, I stay home. If Bart stays home, I'm going to school. Fine. Then, wait a minute. If Lisa goes to school, then I go to school. But then Lisa stays home, so I stay home. So Lisa goes to school. Lisa, don't confuse your brother like that. All right, let's start our discussions today with, um, let's start somewhere fun. Let's talk about dogs. Of course, Santa's little helper is the um, the real hero, the real star of this episode. He's a rebel without a cause. He's a pooch on the lamb. It's wonderful. Um, it is worth noting that dogs actually don't seem black and white. I thought they did. They don't. Yeah, there are a lot of notes on the forums about this episode saying that dogs don't seem black and white. So just thought I'd note that for you guys in case you also write me angry messages. Uh, so in this episode, we see Santa's little helper eat a macadamia nut cookie. Macadamia nuts are really bad for dogs. They're actually quite toxic. So um, I don't have a dog. I've got a cat, but my sister has a dog who I've kind of adopted as my own deranged child. And she is a black Labrador. So I have literally seen her eat a Kleenex with a little bit of pizza on it and be fine. So I'm not sure how deadly macadamia nuts are for dogs. But anyway, don't take my word for it. I did look up other foods that are bad for dogs. Um, So onions, garlics, and chives, lethal. Chocolate, everyone knows, is lethal for dogs. Corn on the cob. So it is worth noting that corn on the cob could be fatal for your dog because um, the corn itself is digested, but it's the cob that causes a blockage in your dog's intestine. Interesting, right? Um, Also, avocados, toxic. Do not feed your dog avocados. Artificial sweeteners like xylitol and grapes and raisins. So the Dog Obedience School has um, a couple of different categories named after famous dogs. You have the category for Rintintin, Benji, Toto, and then the one in which Santa's little helper attends, which is named Cujo. So let's have a look at these different dogs because they're quite cute and they're all quite interesting. Um, probably the lamest though, with a, like the lamest backstory is Benji. Benji is a fictional character that was created by this guy called Joe Camp. 
And um, this fictional character is a cute little pooch, has been the focus of several movies um, pretty much from 1974 through to the 2000s. So the name Cujo is a reference to a 1981 psychological horror novel by the American writer Stephen King, and it's basically about a St. Bernard dog that has rabies. If you watch Kath and Kim, which I hope you do, you'll recognize that name Cujo. It's a cute little name, right? So in his book on writing, um, which I highly recommend, not even if you're just like, I didn't really know Stephen King that well. Um, and I read on writing, obviously, to try and get better at writing. And um, it's just quite an interesting insight into this guy's life because he was batshit crazy for a while. So he wrote in this book that he barely remembers the novel Cujo. He said that he wrote it during the height of his struggle with alcohol and cocaine addiction. And um, he goes on to say that he likes the book and he wishes he could remember enjoying the good parts as he put them onto page. It's amazing, right? It's kind of like how I wake up the next morning and I go through my inbox on Instagram and I've literally DM'd celebrities thinking they're my friends putting up stories just for me. It's, it's, it's quite fun. I'm really hoping that people don't read those inboxes, but oh well, you never know. Doja Cat might read my inbox and want to be friends. So I think the coolest of all of the dogs that were mentioned um, was Rin Tin Tin. So Rin Tin Tin was a male German shepherd who was born in France, who went on to become an international star in motion pictures. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier named Lee Duncan, who um, nicknamed him Rinty, which is a cute name. So his origin story is so damn cool. Following advances made by American forces during the Battle of St. Mihiel, I think it's pronounced, Corporal Lee Duncan, an armorer of the U.S. Army Service, was sent forward to a small French village um, to see if it would make a suitable flying field for his unit. The area apparently had been subjected to multiple repeated aerial bombing. And um, when Duncan arrived, he found a severely damaged kennel, which had once supplied the Imperial German Army with German Shepherd dogs. Um, If you're an animal lover, maybe block your ears for the next 10 seconds. Well, not 10 seconds. I don't know. Push through. You can do it. It's fine. It happened like a long time ago. So the only dogs that were left alive in the kennel was a small mother with a litter of five nursing puppies. And um, apparently these puppies were so new, their eyes were still shut. They were like less than a week old. Duncan rescued all the dogs and took them back to his unit. Um, So once the puppies were weaned, he gave the mother dog to an officer and um, three of the litter to other soldiers. And he decided to keep one girl and one boy puppy. He said that um, he felt that these two dogs were just symbols of good luck. Duncan actually ended up smuggling the two dogs across to America. Um, Tragically, Nanette, the puppy, got, um, I think it was tuberculosis or bronchitis or something quite nasty and ended up passing away. So he just had Rin Tin Tin. Rin Tin Tin apparently was such a well-behaved pooch that um, he started being cast in motion pictures um, and he quickly became a star of the screen, mainly because... um, German Shepherds weren't quite a popular breed around this time. So it's sort of this new fierce dog who, um, I mean, for the casting directors, how amazing is this? They talk about how an actor needs to be like a blank canvas that you can create a story upon. You know, um, you want them to be um, quite ambiguous. And um, this dog was ambiguous enough to always play the character of like a fierce wolf. Um, He played like crazy hounds. Like, oh, it's amazing. Go Rin Tin Tin. Um, He was such a celebrity that he actually finds mention in Anne Frank's diary in her second entry on June 14th, which happens to be my birthday and Donald Trump's birthday. Um, Anne Frank writes that she wishes she had a dog like Rin Tin Tin. She um, also writes that she went and saw the silent film The Lighthouse by the Sea, 
starring our favorite pooch, and that she and her school friends had actually watched it at her house on her birthday. How sweet is that? All right, next up on the uh, chopping block. So in this episode, we see the family quilt, which um, is said to depict certain events from Simpsons history. My quilt! Six generations ruined! So it goes through the king of tobacco, which apparently was the discovery of tobacco. Um, There's a picture of a woman hunting a bison on horseback. That's um, Annie Oakley, who was the sharpshooter. There's an image of a soldier getting shot. We're going to talk about that because that's the one that I find interesting. Um, You have a picture of the Great Depression. And then you've got Marge's, which is like a yin-yang picture with keep on trucking. This one's mine. Keep on trucking? What does that mean? I didn't know then and I don't know now. She says she doesn't know what the phrase means. Um, According to the dictionary, it literally means keep on doing a boring task that you're doing. Just keep pushing through. So, um, yeah, that's interesting because that's kind of what Marge does, doesn't she? And then, of course, you've got the two greatest music- musical influences in Lisa's life. You've got Dewey Largo, her music teacher, and uh, Bleeding Gums Murphy. So um, just talking about the, the soldier getting shot. So this is a patch image that is depicting the famous Robert Kappa photo, The Falling Soldier. Apparently, it's the cover of the book Death in the Making. So um, Death in the Making is a photographic book by um, Gerda Taro and Robert Kappa that documents the Spanish Civil War. It's actually dedicated to Taro, who died in the battlefield the year prior before. So Kappa and Taro, or Taro Taro, I'm not sure how to say her name, but um, they were like a photographic duo who were immensely famous for being these wonderful war photographers. She um, is credited as being the first female war photographer. His work is just sort of um, kind of transcended time. They're the most they're quite haunting their photos. Um, quite a few of them are like out of focus a little bit because he was quite literally on the battlefield with them. It's really, it's really interesting. Have a Google if you want to have a look at these photos. So um, unfortunately, the way um, Taro died is that she was um, doing coverage of the Republican Army's retreat at the Battle of Brunetti. And she um, hopped on the running board of General Walter's car that was carrying like Winger's soldiers. And um, as they were speeding through the streets, it's reported that a tank crashed into its side and she was thrown from the vehicle. Although I have to say that it's a bit of a murder mystery because according to eyewitnesses, she was literally just run over by a reversing tank. So who knows? It is noted that the tank driver did not realize what he'd done or what happened. So um, I don't think you get a lot of, you can't see much out of a tank. I don't know. Never been in a tank. The closest I've been to a tank was like season one, episode one of The Walking Dead when um, Rick Grimes climbs into that tank. So it is during that war that Kappa took the photo that's now called The Falling Soldier. So apparently it's supposed to show the death of a Republican soldier, like right in the middle of his death. And while it is such an iconic photo, throughout the years, there is a bit of question around the authenticity of the photo. There's a few um, like evidences popped up that's shown that there were other photos of the scene suggesting it was staged, but Kappa is insistent that it was a real moment. So I guess we'll never know. It's not the end of the world. We all love that quilt, but you can't get too attached to... Oh, my cookie! <laughs> so I did look up about um, Robert Kappa's death and he actually died in the early 1950s, which is sad, but... Again, it was a long time ago, so I'm sure we've all recovered from it. Kappa travelled to Japan for an exhibition associated with Magnum Photos. While he was there, 
Life magazine had asked him to go on an assignment to Southeast Asia, where the French had been fighting for eight years in the first Indochina war. Although he'd actually kind of retired from war photography, um, you know, this was that one last assignment before retiring, which reminds me of every cop movie ever. So he accompanied a French regiment who was located in the Tai Bin province, um, and it was on the 25th of May, 1954. Apparently, the regiment was passing through a dangerous area and they were under fire when Kappa decided to leave his jeep and go up the road to photograph the advance of soldiers. And tragically, he was killed when he stepped on a landmine near the road. So if the name Robert Kappa sounds familiar and you're a huge fan of sci-fi, You might be interested to know that um, the 2007 film Sunshine, which is probably in my top three of favorite films, starred Killian Murphy, who used the name Robert Kappa because he was such a huge fan of this war photographer. And um, Robert Kappa actually died on Killian Murphy's birthday. So, yeah, it was like an interesting little synchronicity there. If you um, do get the chance to watch Sunshine, see if you can count how many famous stars there are in this movie because it's got like Rose Byrne. Chris Evans, um, you've got Michelle Yeoh, which is just like mind blowing. And it was directed by Danny Boyle. So it's like, it's a, it's a very claustrophobic film, but it's fantastic. I still use the soundtrack when I'm writing. <gasps> Wet assassins. Oh, you betcha. Uh, you know, they got the Velcro straps, a water Ooh. pump in the tongue, built-in Whoa. pedometer, reflective <gasps> sidewalls, and Whoa. little vanity license plates. <laughs> and um, lastly, but never leastly, um, there's a moment in this episode right at the end where Marge and Lisa bond over the creation of the new patchwork quilt. It just reminded me, I remember when I was like 12, I watched a film, I think it was called American Quilt. And it was kind of like, I think it was supposed to be wholesome, but looking back now, It was just intergenerational trauma um, against women throughout the years. And it was kind of like about how women grin and bear it and push through. And that's how they were bonded by their trauma. It was, it was really weird. It was a really weird film, but anyway. um, So at the end of this Simpsons episode, we have Marge and Lisa bonding over the creation of the new quilt. And they do that thing where they touch fingertip to fingertip and they're like, Oh, which is a reference to ET, the extraterrestrial And you'll notice that the theme to the movie plays in the background as well. E.T., when I was a kid, scared the absolute living shit out of me. Oh, my God. I was so scared of E.T. He was so spooky. And also Elliot was such a whiny little kid. I don't know. it It was a sensory overload. When I tried to do some research about this whole fingertip touching thing, you know, like docking your fingers, but like the PG version... I found that um, apparently a lot of critics have found religious parallels between E.T. and Jesus. Stay with me on this one, guys. So Andrew Nigels um, described E.T.'s story as a crucifixion by military science and a resurrection by love and faith. I mean, yeah, like if you squint your brain, I suppose. um, Sure, whatever whatever you guys want to say. But um, according to Spielberg's biographer named Joseph McBride, Universal Pictures appealed directly to the Christian market with a poster that was supposed to be reminiscent of Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam, you know, with the finger touching and a logo reading peace. So it was supposed to have that like subliminal messaging, the Ivanette Miage of um, E.T. Christians. I'm not sure. They did ask Spielberg about this and he said straight up he did not intend the film to be a religious parable. And he said, if I ever went to my mother and said, mom, I've made this movie that's a Christian parable. What do you think she'd say? She has a kosher restaurant on Pico and Doni in Los Angeles. You son of a bitch. God show. Ah! 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 
Alrighty, Rue, and with that, we reach the end of another episode of Hello, Mr. Burns, and we close our deep dive on season two, episode 16, Bart's dog gets an F. Oh, quickly, before we sign out, I love this bit. Oh my God, I forgot to talk about this. I don't have any facts about it, but I just want to say how amazing it is. Number one, the fact that Homer spends that, like $100 on shoes was considered a lot in 91. That kind of hurts my heart. But then also the fact that Marge, when she's watching her soap operas, says this. Jack, I think the baby might be yours. Oh, I'm sure it is, Dollface. But I'd like to see your proof. You treat me like garbage. <laughs> That's because that's the way you love it, baby. <laughs> Gee, is it always this good? Oh, I don't know. I'm just step in and out. I'm only watching today because Brandy is coming out of her coma and she knows the phony prince's body is hidden in the boathouse. And also just like the dialogue. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, anyway, so next week's episode or in a fortnight maybe because, um, you know, your girl's got things to do, like make more bad lasagna. Uh, we'll have season two, episode 17, which is a um, episode called Old Money. And in this episode, grandpa's new girlfriend dies and leaves him a whopping $106,000 in her will. And it's basically about him deciding what to do with it. It's very cute. It's, um, it's a cute, it's another cute episode. You've got B. Simmons, who's voiced by Audrey Meadows, who was like this star of the silver screen. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, she also has a really confusing quote attributed to her name. You as you are better by far than the you that you are trying to be. Oh, wait, I understand it now that I've said it out loud. Anyway, guys, um, my name's Perry. Thank you for listening. And um, yeah, that's all we got. And so concludes our tale. Good night and keep watching the skis. Uh, skies. Skies.